Uh, I want to invite Carol Ardell up. And um, Carol Ardell is one of our, our uh, amazing teachers on our preaching and teaching team here at, uh, at Westwood Church. Uh, but she's not been around for a while. And so for some of you, uh, maybe she's a new face and you're going, oh, who's this? Well, this is Carol Ardell, one of our own. And uh, so, so let me just ask you, uh, Carol, where have you been the last number of months, like since fall? Yes, I uh, accepted a one semester teaching contract at a Christian school down at the coast. So you're a gifted teacher. We're so grateful that you're a part of our team. But then you go down to the coast and you teach high schoolers. Mm -hmm. What was that experience like? Well, I was teaching Bible to grade 9 and grade 11 and grade 12. And once again, I think teachers are in the category of first responders because you never know who's going to show up on a Monday morning. <laughs> so what was that like? <laughs> uh, well... I was comparing it to coming here this morning, and my assumption is that most of you are here by choice. Not everyone in a high school Bible class is there by choice. They have to take the credit in order to graduate, so it's a bit of a tough crowd some days. Right. Okay. Well, that's maybe not totally unlike uh, Sunday morning, but uh, you know what? Let's give Carol a warm welcome back here. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. My realtor friends have told me that there's three things that are important when it comes to real estate. Anybody know what those three things are? Excellent. Location, location, location. And why is that important and why are we talking about that as we're finishing up the series on the Sermon on the Mount? Because if we go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew is super clear at telling us it's actually a sermon on a mountain. And as Matthew was writing to a primarily Jewish audience, as um, people are reading uh, his scroll, they're going to think automatically back to another mountain scene in their history. So go with me back a little bit to the book of Exodus, where Moses has just come down from the mountain and received God's instructions about how to live in relationship with him. And Moses tells the Israelites all the things that God has said, and then the nation of Israel, it says in Exodus 24, all with one voice, they say, we will obey everything that God has told us. We will do it. Everything he said, we will do it. So that's the beginning of the story. But then now we're in Matthew, and Jesus is portrayed in Matthew as a new Moses. And so at the very beginning in chapter 5, Jesus is walking along, and then he goes up on a mountainside, and he sits down. And for a Jewish reader, when a rabbi sits down, everybody leans in, because when a rabbi sits, he's about to teach. So opposite of how we are today, in a synagogue, or when a rabbi was reading scripture, everybody would stand, and then when the rabbi was about to teach, he would sit down. So in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is up on a mountain, and he sits down. And so now he's ready to teach. And if we think of the story in Exodus as a framework for what we're talking about today, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there's going to be a call for a response from the people that have heard Jesus' sermon. So whether you think of Jesus' sermon, um, some commentators would say it was one sermon. Others would say it could be a mashup of his best teachings assembled together, uh, as Matthew does in chapters 5, 6, and 7. So either way you look at it, Matthew's super strategic in how he writes down the conclusion to what Jesus' words were. So in Matthew chapter 7, 
we're going to be looking at different times when Jesus says something and invites his hearers to respond, to choose, free to choose to do something with the words of Jesus. Starting at verse 13, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road, or a traveled way, that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow, or constricted, compressed, suffering affliction, the road, again, a traveled way, that leads to life, and only a few find it. So Jesus is talking about this choice between two roads. The first one is narrow, and I just have been traveling in the last couple of weeks, and this idea of having to fit in a narrow um, frame uh, always came to mind as people were trying to shove their carry-on luggage in places that were not designed to fit their carry-on luggage. I'm like, that, that space is too narrow for this big, huge carry-on that you brought on the plane. So as I was thinking through this passage, what does it mean to be a narrow gate, and what does it mean for a narrow path? Because we all know what broad is. Broad is easy. Broad is you can walk, no problem, nothing's encumbering you, nothing's getting in the way. But when Jesus says that there's a narrow gate and a narrow road, and this road is a way of habitually living, it's this traveled way, and the, the narrowness um, of Jesus and the way that he lived his life we're having communion today, which is great, and I, I miss having a table at the front that has the elements there, and it is a visual cue to what we're talking about. But in, in Jesus' life, he lived um, a crucified life, a cross-shaped life, a cruciform, if we could call it that way, life. That's how he lived. Everything he did was shaped by his coming to save and to serve. And... How many of you played with Play-Doh? Yes, excellent. And there were these Play-Doh things, like I had the basic set, but there were, as Play-Doh you know, technology evolved, there became these presses that you could put the Play-Doh in and you'd push it almost like a garlic press and then out would come a different shape at the end. And I think that this idea of a narrow way, it's like that Play-Doh press that as we're in the narrow way, we're being pushed and constricted. Because this word, narrow, the use, um, it's really a constricting. It's, some people think the Christian life is restrictive, and I would say it's not restrictive at all, but it is constricting. It's pushing us and forming us, conforming us to the shape and the life of Christ. And this shape, if we took the Plato analogy, it's a cross-shaped. So all that is Carol in this narrow road is being shaped and compressed and conformed to the image of Christ, which is cross-shaped. And so as we are walking this narrow road, we're day after day making choices that either help us become this cross-shaped life or we're, or we're not, or we're resisting that. So this cross-shaped life, this cruciform life, Jesus is saying, you have a choice. He just states that there's a narrow gate and there's a wide gate. He doesn't manipulate. He doesn't coerce. He just says there's two choices. You can choose the narrow way or you can choose the broad way. And what is the broad way? Um, it leads to destruction. So someone think that, oh, we want to choose the narrow way to avoid destruction. And I think there's a higher calling when it comes to choosing the narrow way. We choose the narrow way 
because we encounter Christ there. That's where we follow him as our rabbi, not so we avoid destruction. Because Jesus says this narrow, constricting way, it's going to be painful. There's going to be hardships. There's going to be suffering. But we encounter Jesus in the midst of that. So it's not to avoid pain and suffering and destruction as much as to live our life conformed to Christ because we're following Christ and we're in relationship with him. Okay, the next section, Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So Jesus is saying that there's going to be people coming along that say things that aren't true. So again, we have a choice. Who are we listening to? Who influences us? the most. If you think of the world of influencers, who are the people that are influencing you? Are they living a cruciform life? Are the ones that have our ear, Monday to Friday, ones that speak from a place of living a cross-shaped life? Is their fruit good? And I have a confession. I am a Bible Project super fan. And uh, I have listened to their podcasts, and I have immersed myself in it with my students for this last semester. And yet, Tim and John at Bible Project and the team there, they don't know me at all. And I don't actually know them at all. I think I know them, because I've listened to them have conversations. And it's like I'm sitting there with them, but I'm not. So in terms of their day-to-day life, I actually don't know what the fruit of their life is like. And so as much as I'm willing to receive influence from them in their teaching, What's most important, I think, in shaping me in a cruciform life are the people that I see Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. The people that speak into my life that can say, hey, how's, how's that fruit, Carol? Because that's not looking Christ-like at all. And then the people that speak to me, I can look at their life and say, you know what? They're actually like living and oozing good fruit because they're abiding in Jesus. How can I learn from them and be more like them? And so this idea of fruit and false prophets, it's hard to follow a false prophet. Like, um, I, I've been away for a semester, and my husband Steve's been really good at coming down to the coast and seeing me, you know, while I've been down there. But uh, if anybody knows the state of my fruit in my tree of spirituality and character development, it's Steve. And because he's, he knows me better than anybody else does. And I think that's why when Jesus says this narrow road is not an isolated road. It's not me living independently on this narrow road following Jesus. We're doing it in community. So there's tons of people on the broad road, but there's also community in the narrow road and the community that we rub shoulders with for good and for bad, for joy and for pain. These are the people that help us live that cruciform life. So when it comes to Jesus, um, character is important. Throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount, it's the inner working, this place that fruit comes from is most important to him. As he's, you've heard it said, this, this, and this, and Jesus says, but I say, it's the inner motivation, it's the heart, it's the character development, and our character is developed in relationship with people. 
that are here and that are present and that are in our lives and can challenge us and can encourage us. So the next passage, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. What? What does Jesus mean? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So reading this with, our, with my class of grade 11 and 12s, I asked them, you know, what impresses you when it comes to a Christ-following life? What, what impresses you? And so they were talking about different things that they'd seen or they had heard about people who uh, do ministry for Jesus. And it's the big, it's the glamorous, it's the things that um, I get, get all the attention. And they would say, that, that's impressive. And then we talked about, well, what actually pleases God? What impresses us and what pleases God ideally would be the same thing. But when you look at this, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. So the question is then, what is the will of the Father? If it's not to prophesy in your name and drive out demons and perform many miracles, then what is the will of the Father? And uh, in our microchurches this week, uh, we'll be looking at this in a little bit more detail and in character, but um, it's our character that matters more than the accomplishments because it's possible to do for God and have our heart not be obedient to him. And you say, well, well, what's an example of that? Well, if we go back to Exodus and we look at the Moses who led the people out of uh, Egypt, when God gave the instruction um, to get water from the rock, the first time Moses, God said, hit the rock, Moses hit the rock and water flowed out and the people were satisfied their thirst. The next time, um, Moses said, the people are thirsty, and God says, speak to the rock. And Moses does what? He hits it. And yet, what happened? Water still came out of the rock. So in complete disobedience to God, God still used Moses' disobedience to give water to the people of Israel. So how can we say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these great water from rock things in your name? And I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now this evildoers word is easy for me to say, well, I'm not an evildoer. They're the evildoers. But what does evildoer actually mean? The, um, some translations um, will translate as lawlessness, which is a disregard for the lawgiver and the law and the words that they spoke. And I think that's a way better translation in the context of Jesus being a new Moses. Because Moses is the one that gave the law to the nation of Israel. And Jesus is saying, I've been just giving you my teaching. I have laid out for you what it looks like to be in the kingdom of God. And this is what it looks like Monday to Friday when our feet are on the ground and in relationship with one another. And so Jesus is saying, you're free to choose. You can disregard my teaching or you can choose to obey because not everyone who just says, Lord, Lord, but it's the one that actually does the will 
that does, lives out the teaching of Jesus. So my question for me, as we were studying this as a class in high school, why do I think I belong to Christ? Why do I think I'm part of his kingdom? Is it because I say, Lord, Lord? Or is it because I surrender and submit myself to this cruciform life? When Jesus says, that pride, Carol, that's not going to fit through this cross-shaped thing that I want to conform you to. It's when I recognize that and surrender to my idea of what this Christ life looks like, and I say, okay, you know what? I trust your love for me, and so I will trust your wisdom as to what this looks like for me to live this out. The next passage. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. So I, uh, I love looking at this passage with the high school students because I said to them, we read this, we read this, we read this. And we compared and contrasted. Okay, yeah, you've got, you got two builders, you've got two houses. They both experienced the storms of life. What's the difference? And they both said, oh, like the whole, both classes said, oh, it's, it's the foundation. The foundation is different. I said, okay, no, what is the foundation? And they're like, is this a trick question? And I'm like, no, it's not a trick question. And I said, what is the foundation? And so almost unanimously, even the kids that didn't go to church and were from a different faith background, they all said, Jesus, Jesus is the rock. And I'm like, well, that's actually not what it says. In most instances, Jesus is a good answer, but in this case, it's not. What is the rock of this? It's the putting into practice of what you've heard. Both people have heard. Both people built a house. Both people have chosen a foundation, and both of them experienced storms. And then we talked a little bit more, and we said, we usually think of the wise people are the people that sit inside the church building, and the unwise people are the people that sit outside the church building. However, Jesus is saying that there's two people that have heard the words of Jesus. So it's insiders who are following him and hearing his teachings, and he's saying even insiders that have heard Jesus' teaching have a choice to make and you're free to choose. You can choose the foundation. So we can choose to be hearers, or we can be choose to be hearers and doers. And when we're hearers and doers of Jesus' teaching, that's when we're the wise builders. And this, uh, this passage, especially um, coming from the mouth of Jesus, who was a rabbi and knew his Jewish scriptures inside and out, and if you look at Psalm 1 later this week, or if you read Proverbs 1 to 9, this, this is a, just all the history and the wisdom of um, the Jewish faith. Jesus just pushes it all together in this great visual picture of two builders building a house. And he talks about um, the lady wisdom and the foolish woman in Proverbs. They both build two houses. And that's, I think, the thing that we need to remember. We're all building a life of some kind. And we're all building a life somewhere. It's not whether we're building a life or not. We're all doing that. That's a fact common to humanity. 
but what is our foundation going to be? And the, the foundation of obeying Jesus, I think it's tied to two things, and we sang about it uh, in the song today. I will build your, my life upon your love. It is a sure foundation. And then I will put my trust in you. And so trying to figure out how to talk about trust and obey to grade nines and grade 11 and 12s was hard because I grew up singing trust and obey because there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than trust and obey. But I knew that wasn't going to land with the grade nines. And so how do we do this? And so I rephrased um, the idea about um, trusting, meaning to rely on God's love for us. So when we rely on something, we're actually leaning into it. We're putting all of our weight and confidence on this. I'm going to rely on this. And then what does it mean to obey? Because that's just a, a harsh word in any generation, but especially the grade high school kids coming up. And so what does it mean to obey Jesus? I think it means to yield to his wisdom. And they're all, they were all learners getting their driver's license, and we were discussing the difference between a zipper merge and a yield. And they recognized that when I have to yield, I have to stop and allow someone to go ahead of me. And the idea of Jesus as a rabbi is that we stop and allow him to go, and then we tuck in behind him, and we follow. And the great thing about um, Jewish uh, culture is they have these great little pictures, and I, because I think in pictures, it's so helpful for me. There's two ideas that come with being, well, there's probably more, but there's two that I remember about a Jewish rabbi. And a Jewish rabbi would walk, like, walk around, and that's his disciples would follow. So as Jesus is walking around, the disciples, a true disciple of a rabbi, was to follow so close that they would be covered in the dust of the rabbi's feet as he walked. So you follow super close, and you're covered in his dust. So you're not following, like, from the bleachers, Jesus walking around down there, but we're so close that we're covered in his dust. And then the other picture that I have of a Jewish rabbi, which is, is just so, it's been a game changer for me, is actually how I read my Bible, is that when a rabbi is speaking, the disciples are to follow so close behind that they catch the words. Like the rabbi's words will never have a chance to hit the ground because you're following so close, you're catching them. So as I read the scripture now, it's like, okay, I, got, I don't want this to get through my fingers. I need to catch this. And from this reading, the words of Jesus to me, I take what I've heard him say, and now I have a choice to make with this. Do I, do I take this and I obey it and make myself a little bit more cruciform like Christ? Or am I going to say, you know what? I think that was just a good suggestion, and I'm going to let that hit the ground. And when I have to go through that process about whether I'm going to put that on the ground and then go do something else, that's, that's a lot more harsh than me reading going, oh, well, this is a great moral teaching for somebody somewhere. So for homework, um, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. In my lifetime, I've seen a shift when we talk about Jesus. We've shifted from trust and obey to Jesus loves me. And do I think that that emphasis was lacking when I was growing up? For sure. But I think we've perhaps emphasized the love of Jesus to the neglect of his wisdom, his intellect, and his authority. And so as these things come together, um, if, he is, if Jesus is enough to save us, 
and we're celebrating communion, if he's enough to save us, then surely he is enough to be Lord of our lives. To have him as Savior and not Lord, that actually negates his ability to save us if he's not worthy of the authority for us to follow him. So make me know your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth, not my truth, because my truth is so culturally acceptable now. This is my truth. But we want him to lead us in his truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. You're the one that saved me. Your truth, your wisdom is what's going to help me live this cruciform life. And so, for you I wait all the day, not just on Sundays. So for this week, what if each morning we pre-decide to rely on God's love and yield to God's wisdom, and then we practice doing what isn't easy one choice at a time? Because this cruciform life is not an easy life, but it comes from a place of relying on God's love. Man, he loves us. God demonstrated his love for us. While we were sinners, he died for us. And his love we can rely on. And then his wisdom is what we yield to. And that's how we become wise. That's how we walk the way of wisdom. And if I've discovered anything in the last six months of being down south and working in a high school, there is a shortage of wise men and women. There is a shortage of wisdom in each generation. And so how do we live as wise people? We rely on God's love and we yield to his wisdom and we become the cruciform body of Christ.